time to thrive. Welcome to the Thrivology Podcast with Dr. Lee Bauckham. Join us as we explore ways that you can thrive in your life, regardless of what life throws at you. It's your life. Time to live it. Today, I have a very special guest. Therese Castellinas is with me. Therese has 19 years of experience working with adults, adolescents, couples, and families, and she's developed a treatment style that is engaging, goal-oriented, and strength-based. That allows her clients to participate in their own growth and healing. She works collaboratively with her clients to find an approach that works best for them, and she feels like it's important that she create a friendly, comfortable, non-judgmental space where her clients can express themselves openly and freely. Now, this ties into our conversation today. Therese specializes in anxiety, depression, trauma, grief, and loss in relationship issues and major life transitions. Now, the reason that that means something today is because Therese had a huge, major life transition and how she worked through that and how she continues to work through the challenges of life speaks to her capacities and her training. She believes that through therapy, unresolved issues can be addressed so you can gain freedom from shame, guilt, anxiety, depression, and work toward healthier ways of living that allow for much more meaning and living an authentic life. Therese holds a Master's of Social Work degree from Loyola University with a Bachelor's degree in Psychology from DePaul University, so she comes well-versed in her skills. She also did work in private practice, or does work in private practice, but works also as a critical incident response consultant, where she supports people who have been through trauma. She's also a certified Reiki practitioner. Therese brings to us a touching story, but not just that. She also gives us several different steps of the process as you move through grief and loss. So join me now as I have a chance to talk with Therese Castellinas. Therese, I'm really looking forward to uh, for us to have this conversation because I heard your story at a conference and it struck me as something that had elements that people really need to hear about. And uh, you've gone through a lot um, and still, I mean, as you say, life always has stuff to, to throw in your way. And so I'm really excited about how we can talk about that in ways that help people understand their process of grief and growth and, and through that. So let's talk a little bit about how you got to here. Can you can you tell us a little bit about your story and um, tell us uh, the kind of the background for how you've arrived at uh, these ideas you have now about how people can deal with grief? Okay, absolutely. Um, so I am a psychotherapist. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and I have been practicing therapy for 20 years. Where I I, I currently have a private practice. And one of the things that I specialize in is grief and loss. So um, as you mentioned, uh, we met at a conference where I shared a story of um, here I was, you know, a therapist specializing in working with teenagers and families. And I had a girl who was referred to me um, because her mother had a brain tumor And the staff at the school, this was a school-based clinic, um, knew that my husband was also um, going through uh, brain cancer. Uh, I was a little reluctant to take her on because it was really too close to home. But this girl had made it very clear. She was very bright and um, she was a senior and she made it very clear that 
she didn't think anyone could understand what she was going through. And so um, she had not followed up with any other therapy. And uh, I just thought that, you know, that I could really reach out to her and, and support her. So... Yeah, so it's, it's really interesting, Teresa. You talk about this because a lot of times people don't think about the fact that something's going on in a therapist's life <laughs> yes. that can mirror closely what's going on, the parallel process, as we refer to that process, um, for a therapist and a client. And you've got to be sure that you're able to differentiate that. So at this point, you've got you've got a client coming in whose mother has a brain tumor while you're at the same time going through that same thing with your husband. Exactly. Okay, so... How did that unroll? Well, I'll, you know, I do want to say that at this point, my husband was going through some clinical trials um, and, you know, no one had said to me that he was dying at this point. Every time we'd go for the weekly follow-up, they said that everything looks stable. And so my plan was to continue to work until um, I was told that he was terminal and then I could use up all the time that I had saved, um, to spend it with him. So, um, so as I, as I met with this young lady, she, um, explained to me that her fam, her mother's family had insisted on sending her back to their country, um, because they thought that they could provide more kind of, um, holistic, you know, herbs and uh, medicine in order to help her because the doctors had already told her and her family that there was really nothing else they can do but put her in hospice. And so although it was something that was really difficult for her, you know, she was an only child. Um, her and her father, of course, wanted to be with her. They saw it as an opportunity for her to be with her family. And so they made the decision together that they would send her um back to her uh, country of origin in order to be with her family. And now this poor girl was a senior. She wasn't that far from graduating and she had to make trips back and forth. You know, she had to fly back and forth and it was really hard for her. Um, during therapy, I was really trying to encourage her to just be able to have the conversation with her mother to be able to say goodbye to her mom and to be able to share with her mother everything that she wanted her to know. You know, um, I think that's really important for people to be able to do. But what she said to me, which I think is, is pretty common um, for people uh, who are dealing with uh, end of life um, transitions, is that she didn't want to say goodbye to her mom because she didn't want her mom to think that she was giving up on her. And I'm sure that it was equally as difficult for her mother to say goodbye to her daughter as well. I mean, I, I think anyone can understand that. So, you know, week after week, we would continue to talk about it. And one day um, she came to me and she, she said to me that her mother, she can see that her mother was sleeping more. Um, and she just, she just started to describe something that I started to see in my husband. And it was only with her story did I then realize that my husband was in fact dying. Mm -hmm. Even though the doctors had not said it, 
Um, my husband also shared with me that he thought he was dying. Um, and so again, having to, to be present with her, to support her and to be able to really support her also, you know, recognizing these feelings in me that, um, that were starting to come up. Um, but that same day I encouraged her to really have the conversation with her mom. Now, unfortunately, her mom's family was really upset that she had chosen to come back to Chicago to finish school, even though the mom had made it very clear that it was important to her, to the mom, that she graduate high school. So this girl was also struggling with knowing that the end of her mom's life was coming, but also wanting to keep a promise to her mom. And, you know, her mom's family mentioned to her that they thought that she should stay there. And they made her feel really guilty about it. You know, they said, you only have one mother. You can always go back and get your GED. You can always, but you only have one mother. And, um, and she said, but this is important to my mom and this is a way to honor my mom. So when she came back to Chicago, I met with her that morning. And again, I encouraged her to have the conversation with her mom. And she said, you know, Missy, that they called me, um, I'm going to do it. I'm going to call my mom tonight and I'm going to tell her how much, uh, how lucky I am to have her as my mom and everything that I've learned from her about, you know, about life. The next morning she came back and she told me that she called and her uncle answered the phone and she asked her uncle if she could talk to her mom. And her uncle said, I'm not going to wake her up. If you really wanted to talk to her, maybe you should have stayed here. And she begged her uncle to please, you know, just two minutes, just please let me talk to my mom And her uncle said, no, I'm not going to wake her up. You can call her tonight. And an hour later, she got a phone call that her mother had passed. Wow. And she was devastated. And, you know, it was this story um, and her experience that made me make the decision that it was time to go home and to have that conversation with my children. We never kept my husband's illness from them. They knew that, you know, that he had had four uh, brain surgeries. Um, He was a teacher and he worked until two days before his, two months, I'm sorry, two months before his passing. Mm -hmm. He was very dedicated to his students. Um, They knew that he had a brain tumor. And when they asked, when my son, who was eight at the time, asked if, you know, his dad can die from this, Um, I told him that he could, you know, my daughter was five and so they were small, but we never kept it from them. We, we did our best to, to have a normal life and it, you know, his illness was never, um, kind of always present in terms of the things that we did as a family, but it was time to have the conversation with my children that, that, um, they needed to let him know everything that they wanted him to know because he was dying. And, and I have to say, you know, Lee, that I got a lot of resistance from my family for, for making that decision. You know, they said they're too young, but what if he pulls through because he had so many times before over the 11 years 
Um, he lived longer than than they said he would. He was supposed to live five years. He lived 11 years with this. And, you know, I, I was kind of alone in making this decision. But again, as a therapist, knowing long term um, what happens if people have this unresolved, you know, um, unresolved feelings after loss, that it was really the best thing to do. Wow. And, and those those thoughts are so common for, you know, when we're at that point where somebody either thinks that if they say goodbye, they'll jinx it or right. that they're betraying or that they're too young or, you know, lots of other excuses, which is basically our way of hiding from the emotions of that, uh, of making Absolutely. sure that we don't have to approach that that very scary place. So your kids had a chance to do that, to say goodbye? Yes. And- Yes. And let me tell you, as a mom, it was the hardest thing that I ever had to do is being able to, you know, I heard them playing in their room and I heard them being kids. And, um, and I just remember very, very vividly knocking on their door and and telling them that I had to talk to them. And, um, I'll never forget the look on their face when I told them that I, that I wanted them to tell him everything that they wanted him to know because he was dying from his brain tumor. How did they process that? I mean, they're eight and five. Right. How did they process that? Well, my, my son, it was always, you know, very mature in his thinking. Uh, he was able to verbalize it in a very different way than my daughter did. But, you know, I remember my daughter just telling him, daddy, I don't want you to be sick anymore and kind of touching his scar, you know, and, um, and then he, you know, he told her, you know, I'm always, I'm always going to love you. And I'm always going to be here with you looking over you. Um, and then she was, she was just like, okay. And then she went off and was playing. I mean, that's kind of what we expect from a five-year-old. Mm-hmm. My son was, you know, cried with, with his dad. Um, and my, my husband who was not able to formulate sentences anymore, said with such clarity, you know, I say God touched his lips to, to allow him to say goodbye. And, you know, told my son that he was very proud to be his father. Mm -hmm. And, um, and my son told him that he was really lucky to have him, um, as his dad as well. And so they cried together and they were, my son who is now going to be 21 has always, has always thanked me for doing that because he, you know, the therapist can't do the therapy, right? And so I put him and my daughter in groups for children who had lost a parent. And my son, after leaving his group, said to me, do you realize, mom, I'm the only one that got to say goodbye? Mm. And so thank you so much for telling me that dad was going to die. There's interesting that it's the blessing of saying goodbye, but also the fact that he got a blessing. You know, that yes. he was able to hear how special he was from from his father in a way that probably would never have a chance to again. Yes, absolutely. So that's not the end of the story. No, that's not the end of the story. So, um, so you know, my, my husband was very, um, he was very courageous. He was very, I'll just briefly share a story about um, a social worker that I I was really disappointed in when, um, when the social worker first spoke to my husband at the hospital after being diagnosed with this, um, with this brain tumor, my husband 
um, said to the social worker after the social worker asked him, so what's next? Mm. You know, and my husband said, well, I've decided that I'm going to change majors. And so I'm not going to be a CPA. I want to be a teacher. And the social worker said, wait, you're still going to go to school. And my husband said, yes. And he said, but you know, this is probably you're, you're probably going to die from this. And so what happens if you go to school and you kind of use up time that you could spend with your family? What if that, and my husband says, and what if I live for a hundred more years and never accomplish my dream? What if, what if that? And so that is how he lived his life. He didn't, you know, he didn't say, Oh, I'm going to die. I can't believe it's like, you know, and he, and he said very clearly to me, whenever I would get really emotional and scared and I'd cry, he would say, Therese, please don't mourn me yet. Mm. And that really put it into perspective. Yeah. He's like, I am here now. We are here together. Let's live. And so because of that, after he passed away, um, after he passed away two years after his death, mm. I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Wow. And, um, certainly it was scary. I was a widow, you know, I think it's pretty normal to think about what's going to happen to my children, you know, the, and, and just really afraid to tell them that I had cancer because of losing their father and what cancer meant. Hmm. That's not the end of the story either. <laughs> no, that's not the end of the story. So, um, Kind of in the in the midst of going through this, um, I was very lucky enough to meet this wonderful man who just kind of fell into my life, and I I certainly wasn't ready. I certainly didn't expect it, and I was pretty resistant. I really did my best to. Um, keep myself at a distance and, um, you know, and, and just not, just not want to kind of have to start this new relationship. Um, you know, my husband was really amazing. And one day he had a conversation with me and, um, it was at a time when he wasn't really sick yet. It was kind of in the middle when he was healthy. And he said, you know, I have to tell you something. And we were at the park with our kids. And he said, um, you know, when I die, and immediately I said, please, I don't, I don't want to talk about that. Like, I don't want to talk about that. Mm-hmm. And I said, you're, you're going to be fine, you know, and, you know, just, just really having a hard time hearing it from him. And he said, please, it's really important. I need to say this to you. And I wanted to say, I wanted to say it to you for a while. So he said, I really want you to get married again. And he said, because our daughter needs a daddy and no matter how strong you are, our son 
needs a father, a man to show him how to be a man. Mm-hmm. And he said, you have so much love in your heart that I really don't want you to be by yourself. I mean, when my husband did pass away, I was 39. And what I didn't know, Lee, until after his death, is that he had already talked to my family and he had already talked to his family and said, when Therese finds someone that she wants to be with, I need all of you to support her 100% because she's been a fabulous wife to me and has really taken good care of me. And I need all of you to support that decision, not to question it, to support it. And I never knew about that until after his passing. So part of what struck me about your story when I heard you tell it the first time was the fact that, um, and and you added another piece, but at that point, what you said was, um, I realized when I met this other person, I didn't have to replace, I wasn't getting rid of him. I wasn't replacing him. He wasn't gone from our lives. He was there and everything else, but he was aware of that too. As he was facing uh, his own mortality, he was realizing that if there was somebody else in your life, that didn't mean that he was replaced. There was something new there, um, which takes a lot. Um, so it does. Let me skip us forward to your new husband, who also sees the same thing of no need to replace. Yes. How? How? So three places, the three primary uh, adults in the room, <laughs> your now deceased husband, you and your now now current husband all saw that there was no need to um, pack him away. And, and that really gets to where we're going to be talking about dealing with grief. Yes. But that he continued to be a part of your life. Talk a little bit about that. And then let's talk some about how people go through this process in a healthy way. Okay. So interestingly enough, before I, I had met my husband, my son, and this was really not long after uh, my husband had passed away, we had gone to a restaurant. It was just my son and I, who at this point had turned nine, and he saw the restaurant owner flirting with me. And he, you know, he was really kind of upset about it. And he said, Mom, why is that man talking to you so much? And I said, I don't know, honey, I think he's just being friendly. And And then he said, he asked me, he's like, mom, are you going to get married again one day? And I said, sweetheart, I don't know. And he said, what did daddy want? And I shared with him what my husband had said to me. And he said, well, then, then I'm okay with that too. And, and I told him, I said, you know, I'm not sure about what's in the future, but what I do promise you is that whoever wants to come into our family has to know that daddy will always be part of our family Mm. and that we are all a package deal and that we'll never start. We'll never stop remembering him, laughing about him, watching videos of him, which I made tons of because I knew that he was going to pass away. So we have, I can't even tell you how many videos of my husband. Um, And I have to tell you, Lee, that, um, I, I feel really good that I kept that promise. Mm-hmm. And I knew when I said that I was very resistant and, and, you know, uh, my, my current husband, Marco, um, 
can attest to that. I remember knowing the moment when he was the one, when he said to me, you know, if you marry me, I promise I will always know my place in this family. It will always be the kids first and Roger on one side of you and me on the other. Mm -hmm. And one of the, the most beautiful things that Marco has ever said to me is during one of the surgeries that I had in relation to my years of medical problems related to the cancer and so forth is um, he told me after the surgery that while they were wheeling me in um, and this, this is emotional because it's so beautiful, but he said, while they were wheeling me in, he said, Roger, I can't be in there with her but go be with our girl. And he's talked to him. He's asked him for, you know, kind of give me the words to be able to, to, to support, you know, Therese, because you know her best. And, you know, he's dreamt having like sitting under a tree with him and them talking together. Um, he never met him in life, but, you know, he sees this as a big responsibility and something that, he, he honors with us, you know, um, I'm Hispanic. So we put an altar for the day of the dead and he always makes sure to, you know, put his favorite beer there and be like here in honor of you, Roger. And when it's father's day, he says, you know, did you remember to say happy father's day? And when it's his birthday, he says, did you wish, you know, um, daddy Roger, happy birthday. So, and, and, Another one of my favorite stories to tell is um, I told Marco that uh, that Roger promised me that he would take me to Italy because it was my my number one place that I wanted, you know, where I wanted to go on my on my bucket list. And he died before he could complete that promise. So maybe about four years after or three years after we got married, um, Marco surprised me and the kids with a gift. And he said, I'm taking you to Italy to complete Roger's promise to you. And I'm taking you to Spain for me. Mm. And so he's never felt like he's had to compete. He's never felt um, jealous or, you know, it's, it's knowing that we are a family and he, he takes honor in knowing that he's finishing something that Roger started and takes that very, you know, feels very honored to be able to do that. And there's such a testament to um, your, to the relationship you have with Roger that you felt able to go seek love again. You know, sometimes people um, give up or yes. resist or feel like they're betraying, but there's a piece of you that recognized that you were still, and amongst the living and still part of living is loving and that you were able to continue doing that, which is a great testament to your relationship and brings me to these four pieces of the, the process. So let's talk about these four pieces that fit into your process, but also apply to everybody. Mm -hmm. um, so let's just go through these. Um, you, you told me the four, but I'm going to let you introduce each one because Nobody else got to hear you telling me about it. So <laughs> okay. let's go through each one and you can uh, pull out the pieces of this story or other stories 
about how that works and how others can apply it. Okay. So I believe that, you know, again, this, this is, um, in no way linear, um, and people, um, have their own process, right? But in my 20 years of kind of working with people who specialize, or I'm sorry, who were going through grief, um, I think that these four steps are really important in order to begin um, the healing process. So um, I start with allowing. So allowing feelings to come, um, I think, are really important. They're They're very painful, and I understand why people don't want to allow those feelings to come because it's as if they are experiencing it all over again. And, you know, I like the metaphor about the beach ball that what happens if you, you know, hold a beach ball under water, it's going to come to the surface. And that's, that's how feelings work. And you usually can hold, you can the hold it there for what that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can hold it there. Maybe, you know, if you're strong enough, you might be able to hold it for a bit, but it will always come to the surface and usually um, in the most inconvenient times mm-hmm. and um, and they catch people off, you know, off guard and by surprise. Um, so just to have a place where you can allow those feelings to come and, and, you know, sometimes they are not pretty. I mean, you know, it, it can it can come as anger. Um, which people have a hard time with, um, you know, they can often feel guilty that they're having feelings of anger. Um, it can come in the form of, of just feeling helpless and completely hopeless about ever being happy again. I mean, there, there's a huge range, but, you know, people are really good at just holding them down and, distracting and kind of saying, no, I, you know, I know he's in a better place or I know that she's with God, but really under the surface, there's a lot of feelings that they just haven't really allowed themselves to even feel or to even recognize. So I think that allowing your feelings to come, listen, I, I still, I still cry. I still miss him. I mean, that's, uh, when people say you move on or, you know, I mean, you move on. In other words, you continue to live, but I mean, I loved him. Mm -hmm. You know, we were together 18 years, um, on our anniversaries. I think about him and I think about, wow, we'd be married, you know, 25 years, um, 30 years. Um, my children, my, my son who is going to turn 21, um, you know, told me that he misses him more now than ever. Um, and it, it's, it's where you are at developmentally. Now he's becoming a man, right? And so he, um, um, he doesn't know that I, I have like pages from my husband's journal um, that I think will be so good for him in terms of what he's searching. He's like on the spiritual search and it's almost as if my husband is answering some of his questions. And so he, you know, he longs to know what would dad be saying to me? I mean, he has a great relationship with Marco, but he still longs for what would dad say, you know? Um, and, 
And my daughter is, you know, she was very small. So she definitely has a connection with my husband now because she remembers more of my husband now. And, you know, they created memories together, but she sleeps with my late husband's pillow every night and has slept with it since she was five. And she says, you know, I have a daddy here and I have a daddy in heaven. And so it's, it's not that the pain that it's not that the pain goes away. You just kind of revisit it in different periods of your life, um, and we allow it to come, and so the, and that's okay. Let's so you it, it notice that word allowing is not um, that you're um, you're not creating it. It's there. <laughs> it's it's there. <laughs> yeah, it's already there. And mm-hmm. whether you're going to hide it and and try to hold it down or um, whether you're going to express it and allow it to be there and how you express it. There is a choice between allowing the fact that you have emotions and how you choose to express them. That is, is our choice. So allowing sometimes is tough for people, which I think leads us to that second piece for you um, that I think links into that. So what's the second, not step, but what's the second part of the process? Um, I, I believe that it's compassion compassion for ourself and others. And in this case, you know, when the feelings came up for me, a lot of the feeling was guilt, guilt at the big one that took years and years to kind of just have some compassion for myself is the little stuff, the, you know, why did I nag him about the chores when I, I could have just let it go, you know, um, why did I, you know, do that kind of thing? Why the, the other big one was, why did I, why didn't I stop working sooner? You know, and, and my hospice worker said to me, then who is going to pay the bills? Like you were, you had to keep insurance so that your husband could still get the treatment. Again, these are so obvious now looking back, but when you're in the middle of all of the feelings, it's really hard to kind of see your way out. So having some compassion to say, you know what, Therese, you you did the best you could and, and you did a pretty good job that I was still a therapist and I was taking care of a, a husband who had cancer. He had four brain surgeries over the course of his 11 years he was a teacher, and, and so every time he would have a surgery, he was out for months. Um, and so that meant that I had to pick up some other kind of hours or, you know, get some consulting work going in order to patch things up. And then I was raising two children that I was really trying to keep as normal of a life as possible for. So to have some compassion for myself to say, you know, in the, in, in the scheme of things, was it really a big deal that you nagged about every day-to-day kind of relationship stuff, you know? Um, and so it, I had to have some compassion for myself and then also having some compassion for him because when you're really just trying to keep it all together and, and, and my husband kind of in his own trying to process the fact that he knew that he would probably die from this. And so, um, you know, having to have some compassion for him and, and his own experience, um, 
I, I think was a really important part of getting to where I am now. One of the, the, um, axioms I live by is the people do the best they can given where they are. You know, it's, it's not that we all are always living at our, at our optimal, but given all the things that are going around us that we're doing the best we can, which to me is uh, the groundwork for compassion. That's where yes. we, we can allow that. If, if I'm doing the best I can, you're doing the best you can, given where you are, you can have compassion for where those places are. Okay. So step two or process number two, piece number two is compassion. And then what comes next? So we move to forgiveness, right? So being able to say, you know, I did my, I did my best, like you said, with, with what I had and then being able to forgive myself. And that I think out of this whole process was probably the hardest thing to do. And I think all of us are hard on ourselves, you know, um, you know, why didn't I do this? Why did I do that? Why, why couldn't I have done this differently? And so the, the other piece of having compassion is if I'm going to just accept that I'm human and that I, I, I didn't do such a bad job. And my husband would all, always kind of say, you know, you're an incredible wife and you're a wonderful mother and thank you for taking such good care of us. Um, but we, a lot of us kind of tend to focus on the few things that we kind of didn't do perfectly. Um, and then we kind of hyper-focus on that one thing. And so it, it is, you know, it is something that took me a lot of years to kind of be able to do, to forgive myself. Um, and it, just because of the feelings of guilt that were just constantly there. Mm -hmm. A lot of people also struggle, not just forgiving themselves, but oddly forgiving the person who left them. And yes. I think a lot of times that, um, so a lot of times forgiveness we associate with post blame, you know, I blame something and, and then I forget that. And sometimes it's trying to figure out where to focus, you know, the, mm -hmm. the blame, the frustration, um, when, uh, there's, uh, somebody who's sick, it's hard to blame the person who's sick. Um, right. so sometimes they get it anyway, the doctors get it, God gets it, you know, everything else. And really what it is, is trying to figure out why this had to happen. And, and so I think, uh, forgiveness is sometimes accepting that crappy things happen and, right. um, that it's releasing the emotional hold that it has on us. Yes, I agree. And, and I, you know, I, not very long ago was, was angry again. And, you know, that, that I, I didn't feel like I quite had the answers in the same way that my husband would have, you know, my husband was very philosophical and he was definitely, we balanced each other out. He was very chill. I can be a little tightly wound up a little bit at times. Um, and so we really balance each other out. And Marco is very chill as well. So the balance is still there. But when my son was looking for certain answers, I just felt like Roger would have been able to answer it so much better than I. And I just remember getting really angry at him, just saying, like, why couldn't you just, like, choose to stay, you know, why couldn't you? And, 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 you know, I was crying and, and I was angry. And then I know I could just almost hear him say, it's okay. Like, it's okay. I get it. You know? Um, 
And then, of course, I, you know, I, I had to apologize and mm-hmm. say, you know, I know you didn't want to leave. And I, you know, I'm just feeling really sad and, and, and kind of at a loss for words. And I just knew that you would know what to say to, to him. Yeah. Yeah. So all of that brings us to a new reality. So you have a piece for that. What is that new piece? Acceptance. So accepting, you know, the situation for what it is, whether it was, um, recognizing that, you know, I had breast cancer and I had some really tough decisions to make. Um, and just remember, you know, I had a, I had a pity party for one day and I called my family and I, and, and I certainly let God have it to say, really God, like it wasn't enough that, you know, that we, my husband and I had more years with cancer than we had without cancer you know, that wasn't enough that you took away somebody that I I loved with all of my heart to now think that this is a a good lesson for me to have to learn by now me having cancer. Um, And so I, yeah, I had a pity party for, for about a day or two. And then after that, I, I just kind of said, okay, I, it's about accepting it is what it is. And I can, feel like a victim, which isn't going to change anything or get me anywhere. Or I can uh, accept that this is what I have and make a decision. Mm. And so I went for some really, you know, radical kind of decision in order to get the, the best possible outcome of having me be here for my children. A lot of times with clients, I've talked about the fact that whenever something happens, you're, you're finding the new normal, you know, you're, and yes. that's, that's a struggle. But the new normal um, always works better than refusing to accept what is. That's one of my premises of thriving is you've got to accept what is. You've got to say, okay, here, here's where I am. That's my starting point. Right. Um, and a lot of people feel like if they accept what is, they've given up. And for me, that's just where you're saying, okay, this is my beginning point. I now know where I am and know where I'm headed. So um, accepting uh, what is and seeing how to build around that new normal is a powerful place of growth for people after a loss like that. Right. I mean, you know, and if, if you don't accept it, you're always kind of looking back or you're kind of denying, you know, not wanting to accept again, the feelings and, and kind of the reality because it's, it's scary, right? It's, you know, you're used to having this life, and, and now having to, to kind of start a new one, it, it can be really, really scary for a lot of people. And so I can certainly understand why it's hard for us to get to that place. But as you said, we can't we can't go to the next step until we kind of accept this is what it is and make a choice about what's ahead of us. Teresa, that's a powerful story and a great process of thinking about how you work through allowing and compassion and forgiveness and acceptance Thank you so much for sharing. It was it's a powerful story for me to hear. And I've heard it pieces of it before, but you went into depth this time. And I I do appreciate you sharing. Uh, I know that even that stirs some pieces up. So uh, thank you so much for the vulnerability and the willingness to share those that great advice. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. listening to the Thrivology podcast. Thank you for listening. If you want more information, visit us at thrivology.com or at thrivologymagazine.com. 
Remember that Thriveology is spelled T-H-R-I-V-E-O-L-O-G-Y. It's your life. Time to live it. 